Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, third-line treatment of CML. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast, Dr. Gerald Radich and Dr. Michael Morrow discuss third-line treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia, and in particular, BCR-ABL1 tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Who are the best candidates for these treatments? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Radich is professor in the Clinical Research Division of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Dr. Morrow is a professor of medicine and leader of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program in the Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I'm Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Radich will begin our discussion. Michael, Jerry here. How are you doing? Good. Fantastic to be joining you, Jerry. Um, welcome to the podcast on the commute. You can hear I'm on a bus riding in from Sammamish to Seattle. Excellent. Good coffee on board? No, 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 no. Just people, sadly. You know, I should probably get together and figure out how you are doing and how your family is, but rather than being civil, um, we'll just talk about CML. Like, but what else can we talk about? What else do people talk about when they're commuting? They talk about leukemia. Yeah, exactly. Or at least they should. So the topic of this podcast is, is going to be on third-line therapy um, and, and, and some of the challenges. And so w- let me do the picture of the usual patient that I see in, in consult for a third therapy. Typically, someone has had run-ups of two different therapies, and they've been stopped um, either because they've had toxicity or because they haven't had a response. And usually their, their therapy has been on and off and stopped so frequently that you really can't tell whether they have actually responsive disease or not. And so you get a patient who, you know, you run through a couple of, of TKIs and here you are and you're talking about, do you have poor response and you have to go to a transplant or another drug or, you know, do we start a third line agent, you know, I suspect you see similar types of patients in a referral center. Um, what are you thinking about in, in third-line therapy when you get to someone who's, who's kind of blown through two agents? I, I think you nailed it when you said, you know, you can't tell whether they're responding or, or, they're, or not, or we're going to be able to find a successful therapy. And maybe it's baseball related, you know, but a third-line therapy is tough because we wonder, you know, we're, we're comfortable to change one, especially if we're trying to optimize response. We figure we, you know, and especially when we move from a first generation to second generation, perhaps we get a little bit more nervous when moving from second generation to something else. And then when, you know, if you're a third line, you're probably onto a third line, uh, or, you know, a third generation, or you're thinking about a third generation. So it's tricky. We're starting to get into that, that sticky area of side effects and, and risk benefit. And as you said, you know, what, what about transplant and, and that, you know, kind of rears its ugly head. So it, it's difficult. I think that's why we're seeing these folks, Jerry, you know, they, the, the, um, the community at large doesn't have clarity when it comes to third-line therapy, particularly, you know, what is exactly the right agent. I think we got some new options to talk about, but um, 
And the transplant represents a completely different option. And, and I think you know the overarching philosophy is to try to skirt around that or to 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 defer that. So I definitely um I'm challenged with these same patients, and um, I hear you. And uh, I think we should talk a little bit more about you know what the strategy should be. So so let's take two scenarios. Let's take a say a patient who you're pretty comfortable, maybe they be even treated by you for the start of therapy. Um, about what they've received and why they've changed. And so let's say you've got a patient who is intolerant to imatinib, and they get switched to another second-generation drug. You pick which one you want to talk about. And they're intolerant to that. Um, so it seems like it's more ability to take the medicine than the disease being resistant. In that case, would you go to another second-gen, since you've got a couple other varieties, right? If you started with disatinib, you could go to nilotinib or bisutinib. Or would you just say, I'm just going to go to the third generation and try my luck with panatinib or now a, a, a similar? I think that's a great uh, example. I think it's changed actually. You know, so my in my in my world, there's a good chance you might have start. Maybe you started with a mandib and maybe added tolerance issues with that. Then you want to descend it because maybe we were trying to optimize response or we we saw something we didn't like and. You might have had a classic toxicity to disandib. You might have had pleural effusions or pericardial, you know, toxicity or, or something that might actually qualify as a as a treatment limiting or a uh, you know a therapy limiting toxicity where you're not going to rechallenge. Uh, but that kind of patient, you do have options. You know, you could go a few different ways. In months, years past, basutinib clearly was around and was a good option. Panatinib was around and you know offered you so much you know hope for maybe a conquering resistance if needed. Um, but you're worried about new new problems you might be triggering with with tolerance issues, uh, 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 with cardiovascular toxicity, with other issues. Um, so that was a tough decision. But I think now I think we have another option there um, with two TKI failures with a simonib, and I think those are all fair game. And and I even say you could think about switch to nilotinib, or in this situation, although you know moving. Moving back and forth between the second generation inhibitors, I think we all realize there may be some limitations there. Uh, you have to think about what's your sequence and what you're expecting from for response, perhaps. Um, for example, I'm a little leery sometimes if someone's not fully responsive to disandib, how well is nilotinib going to perform? I think there clearly are cases where it will, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more inclined to think about something where there's some third line data. Right, right. So, that, so that's the second scenario, right? So the first scenario is, how comfortable are you, that we just talked about was how comfortable are you to switch kind of laterally second generation to another second generation um, if it's just a toxicity issue? And I think most people would be comfortable doing that, right? But then the, the more difficult one is, and I think where Panandib and Asimitib come in more clearly is where you really have resistance, right? You've got someone who tolerates the drug fine, but it doesn't hit the milestones at all. And so they've either gone amatinib second generation, and then I, I think moving to another second generation doesn't make a lot of sense in that situation, unless they have a specific mutation that calls, clearly calls for using another second generation drug, but that doesn't happen that often. Agreed. Um, and then you've got the situation of, do you do panatinib and do you do asimitinib? Um, and I think the real, to me, a question of that also is, what do you do in the context of whether they have a mutation or not, right? So let's say you've got a TKI failure with imatinib. Uh, they don't have a mutation. They get a second-line drug like dasatinib. They now have a mutation. So you have you know, a somewhat, as they say, an intrinsic reason for resistance. 
do you deal with those people different as to the choice of a, a drug, like a simidib, which still is affecting TKI binding, um, versus panadib? I certainly like the options we have in third line. That you know, I think panadib was fairly agnostic to mutations, was really active against T315I. Um, you know, I remember nice preclinical data that showed us that you really can't, you know, you don't generate outgrowth of, of mutant clones very easily. Alakisimidib with a uh, novel mechanism of action with uh, allosteric inhibition and potentially not so much concern over what might be happening at the ATP binding pocket. I worry, I, I, we used to use this term, the mute, you know, like a mutator phenotype. You, know, you have a patient who's got one mutation and unless you're using pretty complex sequencing, you might not know exactly what you're looking at either. You might be looking at you know, one clone that's showing you an able kinase domain mutation, but that might have originated from another clone, and there may be other clones behind that. Over time, it, I think we all recognize it can be can get complicated. And I think it's interesting the the mutation, the um, picking a drug based on mutation evidence and the frequency of mutations as a defining factor in, in choosing treatment isn't as important as we might have thought it was in the very beginning of this. Um, it's clearly important, and it clearly, uh, I think we have still some areas to, to learn in that area, but um, I would tend to choose a third-generation drug for the sake of overcoming that, quote, mutator phenotype, sort of a you know, concern over other mechanisms of resistance. Well, I would also think about some of those select you know, cases where a certain mutation might point you towards a certain second-generation drug. But it's it's um, I think it's kind of fuzzy. I don't know what you think about the mutation. You, you're I mean this is your thing. You're 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 an expert in, in molecular <laughs> diagnostics. Um, shed more light. I think clearly there are cases where where you see a mutation that should be sensitive to a drug and isn't. In some cases where you have a mutation that shouldn't be sensitive and is. And part of that is because you know how those whole grid models are are made is a completely artificial system, right? You take a you take a cell line, you put, plug a BCR able into it. You give the inhibitors to kind of get a baseline sensitivity, and then you one by one make mutations in that artificial construct. So as you're creating something that's not necessarily there by nature, so it's not surprised that sometimes we don't get that right. Right? To me, if if you believe the whole mutation stuff, in a case where you've got a mutation driving resistance, so you know that the resistance has something to do with AT with tyrosine kinase activity doing an allosteric inhibitor that gets at blocking that in a different way outside the binding, uh, able binding domain makes a lot of sense. Um, the ones I worry about more from a practice standpoint is these resistant cases that don't have a mutation because yeah. presumably, we don't know if it's be true, but presumably they're still having their BCR able inhibited. So they've made an end run about you know the, that pathway. And to me, that's an indication where something like panatinib or even transplantation, you know, I mean, because you know that people who have gone through two levels of treatment have a pretty high escape to accelerated phase of blast crisis, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm biased as a transplanter, but your chance of curing someone who's in chronic phase is 85%. Your chance of curing someone in accelerated phase of blast crisis is, you know, less than 40%. So those are the kind of patients I, I, I really worry about. Will the bus driver let me ask a question? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking based on what you just said, you were, uh, I'm, so here's a question. Um, Panantinib versus disseminib, non-ABL non, non -ABL binding domain or non-ABL kinase mutation driven resistance. You, it sounds like you're worried about some other something else, even yeah. though we really haven't put our finger on one you know, right. key mechanism. Yep, yep. Um, 
any difference there? You think you think one might be better than the other? Because I, I think I know the answer. I'm just curious. If, if I just had to make a bet, right, and, and I'm not very good at betting, so this, I'll probably lose this bet. Um, I would bet that something that has a lot, a very, very broad background, like Panadim, is probably the one I would look for, just because it, it attacks so many kinases, right? Um, yeah. and, and then, then you get into, of course, what dose and everything else. Um, and, and that's probably also based on on some of the data on from some of the early Panadim trials on really, really, really heavily treated patients and and, and their ability um, to to at least get some responses in those. Um, but those are the type of patients that I worry about. And, and while I might not transplant them up front, I would certainly have everything lined up, donors and everything ready to go. Yeah. Um, so here's one, another issue. And it doesn't really speak to a synonym because it's not in the FDA label for this. But resistance after your first line of therapy, right? Mm. Um, should you, unless you have a specific mutation that you really believe in, if you start with one second generation and that drug fails the patient, bearing in mind that people don't fail the drug, the drug fails them, um, does it make sense to move laterally to another second generation or should you just move to something beyond that? And then, or if you could change the FDA label, that's similar. Yeah, I do kind of worry about those patients that don't respond to primary therapy, especially if you want to be a good primary, but you know, potent second generation agent, you know, something you'd expect to really have high rates of response. That, that's really worrisome to me. I, I feel like that patient may have some kind of built-in resistance, might have been there at the CML event. Maybe they, you know, unfortunately had a little bit of, of evolution of their disease before they even started. You know, when you carefully stage patients, you might see some other things like in those kinds of folks, uh, high so-called risk, you might see clonal evolution, things, you know, the old school type findings too. So I would feel that you might as we were just speaking about, you might want something with a broader base. You might want something that really can nail the able uh, kinase uh, domain better, or the you know maybe by an allosteric mechanism. I mean, I think that that's the tipping point. We just don't know. You know, when does CML become? When is the horse out of the barn? I think that we can really nail down uh, able kinase activity even better than we ever could in the past. But it's not always the whole story. So I I, I think. Uh, Hard to decide, but I would in general want to be moving to an assimilative penantinib type option if someone was failing a second generation out of the gate. And one last issue that, that since you're a guy that's really interested in, in toxicity and the like, um, where do COVID morbidities fit into all of this? If you had to rank them with the issues of response to mutations and the like and picking a drug, um, when do core morbidities trump that type of stuff? And, mm -hmm. and when do you not care? I think it's a gradation, you know, when, when you're, when you have a clean slate and you have a, you know, you have good high expectations early on, you really want to look at the patient's comorbidities and try to tailor the therapy and, and make sure you go, you go high, high gain, low risk, you know, hopefully, um, acknowledging that no drug is perfect. I mean, some are obviously much safe, you know, much safer than others, or at least more simple with regards to some of the toxicities they trigger. Um, but as soon as you're moving into resistance, I think you have to back off a little bit because I, I, I worry about people avoiding drug toxicities and missing the boat of being able to treat them with the right drug. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to use panandib in this patient because, you know, it may cause a vascular event. If a patient's got a highly resistant disease, I mean, advanced phase CML or transplants a whole lot more toxic than, you know, panandib. <laughs> um, there was some nice data about, you know, in chronic phase CML, panandib served people, you know, for, you know, the, the crossing point when the toxicity for transplant versus toxicity for panandib was matched was about eight years, I think, and, and an EBMT yeah. 
steady, right? And then advanced phase, it was pretty, you know, it kind of came pretty quickly because that's that's just bad all around for those folks. We got to avoid that. So I um, I think there's a gradation. I, I I'm careful not to uh, say contra contraindication to therapy either. You know, I, I think things are relative. You don't want to say someone who has a, any any toxicity in, in, in a certain um, you know organ system is is completely out of bounds. I think you just have to manage it. I'm a big fan of great internal medicine and great CML care married together, but uh, not always easy. Well, Mike, I got to jump. My, uh, my, my bus stops here. I got to get out and go to work. All right. So, um, so I'll catch you on the commute back. Have a good day. Stamp out disease. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll chat uh, later on tonight. All right, Jerry. Safe driving. Bye. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML1. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app for your iPhone. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.